Hello? Hey, yep. Can you hear me? Yep. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice. It's a beautiful day out. A little chilly this morning, but warmed up. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's really, uh, hmm. I don't know. It just feels like suddenly out of the blue, we transitioned almost immediately from winter into summer. (laughs) I know. It was, it's very distinct. It's startling too. (laughs) Yeah. I was not ready for it wholly. (laughs) I'm not complaining, but yeah. 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 So what have you been up to? I have been doing schoolwork has actually been taking up the majority of my time, surprisingly. Mm. Um, I thought it would be fairly, you know, anticlimactic in all the stuff we'd be doing and all the projects we'd get. But um, I'm getting a decent amount of work and it takes up the bulk of my day. Yeah. Um, But when I'm not working, um, I'm pretty much just like consuming media. Other than that, like whether it's books, movies, or YouTube or stuff like that, mm. <laughs> not necessarily doing anything like enriching or productive. Hey, so. no, I, I get it. I've been in a very similar kind of situation, especially with the schoolwork. Um, yeah. Well, my reading's been awfully sparse lately, which. Yeah. Know. Isn't that weird? I know. It's very. Because I. I mean, just when this all started, I. I picked up uh, Killing Commendatore, right. uh, Haruki Murakami's book, and I just roared through it, and I, I loved every second of it, but mm-hmm. just since then, it's just been really this lagging sort of period. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just that idea of even, it's not about, like, the ease of things, like, searching for more time to, you know, spend with your family or read books and stuff. It's just, it's the way you fit it into your life and, and use it, which has yeah. definitely been a, a startling awakening for me because um, <laughs> I'm trying, I have this huge bookshelf in my room um, with like one, two, three, four, like five, four uh, shelves worth of books. I'm just trying to get through the whole thing. I'm on the last shelf, but I just can't seem to finish it. Yeah. I'm that close, but it's just time always seems to escape me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's an interesting thing. We all seem to have this sort of figment of just how much time we have um, available to ourselves to do these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And then just by some sort of weird automatic... Circadian of, rhythm. <laughs> circadian rhythm, almost. Yeah. <laughs> we just, we end up sort of devoting that to other activities because we have the illusion of just this infinite sort of set of time. Right. Well, and I've, I've heard about this on a lot in a lot of news articles and other podcasts I've listened to or internet radio shows where it's the idea of everyone, the, the message that's really bouncing around um, from whether it's like celebrities or teachers or, you know, just the people around you, it's all very much like trying to look on the bright side of uh, pandemic and quarantine life, which I appreciate. I think everyone else does too, but it's all sort of like, this is a time to really be productive. Um, And while that can be for some, I don't think that's a, that's a very universal, um, you know, I don't think it applies universally uh, because obviously some people are really struggling because of health reasons or because they're impoverished and this is really, 
tough time for them in ways we can't even imagine. But also the idea, even for the privileged, where it's like, it, it, this doesn't seem like the time to get the creative juices flowing sometimes. Sometimes it does. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't like with your, uh, with your poetry. Um, I've <laughs> well, seen some really great stuff come out of the, the quarantine because of that. Well, tr trust me. Um, the, well, that book wasn't written during uh, quarantine. The one I sent to you. Right. Uh, but the, the, you sent me one earlier though, that was, Oh yeah. Just like, you a few. Yeah. Looking longingly out at the children playing unaware of the oh, world and stuff yeah enza um yeah <laughs> that was a that was a freaky one for me um but um well the thing is right now i'm writing this lengthier sort of poem mm -hmm. um it's uh, it's called the world's weeping by and it's based off of this other poem by um alan ginsburg called howl mm -hmm. um and it, it's it, it's sort of meant to express all of these different frustrations about say the political environment about uh sort of the state of economic affairs about sort of human nihilism and mm -hmm. an approach to existence that kind of thing mm -hmm. um but i really have just been adding to it very slowly and i've been uh trying to construct it very intricately which is not something i commonly do with <laughs> yeah because it's usually just uh, stream of consciousness oh i have this idea ha! right well and i think part of it is even if like you and i are subject to a lot of stimulus and like we read a lot or things like that watch a lot of films or whatever listen to a lot of music there's it's a different kind of stimulus from like going to school every day and like walking to oh, the yeah. bus stop or whatever or um going to the lunchroom even because that it's such a it's such a different thing because you're such a part of something that I think that really changes um, the things that can impact like writing poetry or, you know, being productive or creative or whatever. Oh yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because I take a philosophical kind of view to that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, say in like uh, China, you have the two, well, in older China, you have the two pr primary sort of philosophies outside of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Confucianism and Taoism. Um, and with Confucianism, you have this really strong emphasis on ritual and activity and constantly maintaining one's own sort of presence in a larger community and acting as some sort of virtue for uh, some sort of example for their own values and virtues, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, well, of course, Taoism, on the other hand, is a philosophy of of flow whereby essentially a person discovers their own internal um, course in life and follows that through the end. It's known as much more of a hermit's kind of philosophy than Confucianism because Confucianism intends to maintain social harmony more than anything, and Taoism is more of an internal way of determining oneself. Yeah. And I generally am a, a Taoist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But it's strange, just I've had this this Confucian sort of yearning mm -hmm. to want to be a part of things. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's definitely the battle between the, the extrinsic and the intrinsic ways yeah. of life. Yeah. I think also very much so that there is um, 
Well, of course, there's the old definition of introversion versus extroversion, mm-hmm. uh, where it's essentially just a person extracting energy from either interacting with people or from their own sort of um, isolation. Um, and I think that in many cases, that uh, sort of definition of it can be misleading because <laughs> I think I am personally rather introverted. Mm-hmm. And just on top of that, it it's bizarre. I feel this incredible sort of drain from just not maintaining these activities and all of that. You know, right. Which I think is fascinating. But... Yeah, it's like this. Yeah, it's us having to be uh, everyone like physically separated from each other is kind of the great equalizer because it's taking away what uh, extroverted people really feed off of. Um but then it's also kind of in a weird way encouraging introverted people to appreciate it more uh when they yeah. had it so it's yeah it's kind of yeah it's it's the uh you appreciate it when it's gone but i i, I find it interesting to see how that varies among uh person to person and what type of person they are yeah yeah it's like the whole the uh, whole Joni mitchell song uh, big yellow taxi uh, you don't know what you got to live. Yeah, <laughs> or that uh, um, yeah. that really sappy Lumineers song that I can't think of right oh. now. Oh, what the hell is that one called? Um, God, I haven't listened to the Lumineers. I know that uh, it's definitely like a late two thousands, early two thousand tens. Yeah, it's oh Christ, how the hell did that get outdated? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's strange, but yeah. I know I had a surreal experience. I was recently listening to some, um, to some Mumford and Sons. Oh just my out of gosh! Curiosity. Yeah, I, I listened to uh, the Cave, and I just thought to myself, "God, this came out in 2011." I know, isn't that weird yeah. to think of? Yeah, it's just like how the hell. There are so happen? many like elementary school anthems that I come across, and I'm just like, "What <laughs> is happening?" Yeah, I know it's. It's bizarre. It's just this. Well, that's the thing about our culture. It's constantly. It's in a constant state of upheaval mm-hmm. um, and continuous change. And this has really been accelerated by all sorts of technological means mm-hmm. and and whatnot. But I think more than anything, um, really, do we do chase after novelty? Mm-hmm. We do chase after change, something new, a new fad, something else to occupy our time mm-hmm. with. Um, and it's a shifting cultural environment, and I think it's it's fascinating how it functions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think in that case, really, it's bizarre. Even in the space of a few months, a person can grow nostalgic for what was uh, formerly the dominant, say, subcultural group, or the, um, or I suppose the 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 not really dominant subcultural group, but basically the cultural zeitgeist of a certain time. And sort of the rapidity with which it can all change really incites this deep sense of, of nostalgia that's constantly switching between different things, especially if in a person's own life, they're encountering all these different things in rapid succession. But yeah. yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was me just, 
off on the state of culture. Totally. I heard of um, this. I don't remember. I don't remember how old she was, but she was having a birthday party and the theme was early aughts, early 2000s. And they were just describing this party. And I thought I would be able to really relate to it because obviously I belong to that yeah. time. But it was all like, yeah. it was, it kind of seemed more like someone who was from the late 90s thinking what like the early 2000s was like. So it was all like, like weird boy bands and like, like posters mm -hmm. of MP3s and stuff, which, no. yeah, it's, it okay. was just interesting, which is what I, I, I bet what people from like, Especially, I feel like uh, people of the 80s generation, probably some of the 70s, too. Um, I think uh, I don't know about the 60s because the 60s seems more varied to my eyes. But um, I feel like people from the 80s and 70s definitely feel some of that where their decade is misrepresented because it actually possesses a lot more nuance than than people see. Yeah, well, I think. It's interesting because um, I recently saw something about uh, this idea of uh, how just over time, slowly we've gotten to the point at which we really don't have sort of an identifying marker or just way of understanding, say, the 90s to mm -hmm. today, uh, purely because the the whole sort of way in which culture itself exists has been irrevocably changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't exactly have these sweeping sort of fads or just uh, sort of the centralization of cultural activity or direction. Mm -hmm. uh, but you do have this, um, but you have much more of a diversification of culture that can't really be brought together into a single sort of consensus or a single sort of um, way of understanding that mm -hmm. period. Um, like, say, if we're talking about the well, you mentioned the 60s. Um, a lot of, I, I know a lot of people who will kind of divide it in, in half. Yeah. Um, decide just sort of like early 60s, 60 through maybe 66 mm -hmm. or something as sort of like this, this crazy, um, I guess, beat generation, Beatles, early Beatles yeah. kind of period um, where you had all these things like the you had the Ed Sullivan show, you had uh, Walter Cronkite as these, and uh, Liberace, all of these kinds of weird uh, cultural mm -hmm. icons of the time. And then after that, you get into basically, like, say, well, especially 67 as sort of the marker of this. You have the anti-war um, movement mm -hmm. going on against Vietnam. You have really this huge cultural zeitgeist just pivoting itself uh into um like the summer of love mm -hmm. and all of that um and then after that you have the 70s which are kind of viewed in a similar light to that latter 60s mm -hmm. period um and i think it's it's fascinating because there is far too much uh diversification even then for us to really yeah grasp at that but that was at the forefront of media and um there seems to be very much so sort of this breakdown or decentralization of what media mm -hmm. is uh, since then. Um, so like think to the, to the nineties, what, what defines that sort of period in your mind?
to me, it's like, I feel like the 80s is kind of like the precursor to modern consumerism. And I think 90s uh, is just this huge juxtaposed battle between um, consumerism and the age of the uprise of the age of technology versus, you know, it's, it's anti-technological sentiments or anti-conformist sentiments. That's what I think kind of defines that decade. Mm. That's, that's definitely a good way of looking at it, I think. But, um, well, I mean, that on its own is a, can also sort of neglect right. things that took yeah. a period. Um, because if we're, well, let's say we're talking in the cultural sphere of the 90s, early 90s, you have grunge going crazy. You have the, the Occupy Wall Street movement. You have all of that kind of stuff, which directed itself towards anti-conformist mm-hmm. uh, sort of goals and things like that. But then later on, especially during, say, uh, Bill Clinton years and uh, Bill Clinton's uh, years in office, you have the huge sort of dot com boom, and you have the sort of the standardization of uh, business ethics and this formation of sort of a what can be called the the neoliberal sort of uh, geopolitical right. order, yeah. really, <laughs> and things like NAFTA assert themselves and all of that, and. Um, and then even looking to, say, Eastern Europe and uh, the rest of the world, this is the point at which Japan's economy fell into its hugest sort mm-hmm. of recession and started to fall into this weird sort of uh, consumeristic culture as it tried to sort of swell back um, economic growth. And then in Eastern Europe, you have all sorts of things happening. You have the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989. You have the Soviet Union falling in 1991. Mm-hmm. You have you have the breakup of Yugoslavia, the unification of Germany, and uh, NATO beginning to really expand as a power there. And you really do see sort of this this movement of sort of Western capitalistic ideals over into yeah. those regions. Um, like um, I remember, there's this one uh, Slovenian. Uh, sort of philosopher who I uh, listen to occasionally, Slavoj Žižek, um, who was um, originally a communist living mm-hmm. in Slovenia when it was part of Yugoslavia. And he watched as slowly there was this huge change, not only in sort of the sphere of economics and popular culture in the country, sort of after the war and all of that, um, and you and he ended up um, also seeing this really strong change in academic circles as they started to sort of embrace these new ideas with sort of a a cultural sort of zeitgeist and not really and following that sense of novelty right and I think that's it's fascinating because you you have a very mixed mm-hmm. set of changes there and yeah and I think even with the 80s and 70s, those definitions can be, the definitions we have for those cultural periods is definitely unreliable, but at least it it portrays what we have as sort of the central means of cultural communication and media right. for that period, um, which deeply changed with the 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I will be, I'll be so. especially 
interested to see what future generations will think of um, the 2010s and the 2020s, even though we're not far into the 2020s, because um, yeah. popular cultural and uh, media right now is just such a, it's just such a, a, it's like a stream of consciousness, but from everyone. So, it, but it's not necessarily yeah. democratic either. There's still definitely a hierarchy, but everyone has the means to influence popular culture. So I think it'll definitely be interesting to what people think are like decade defining, or defining um, you know, celebrities or uh, trends, changes on yeah. the global scale. Yeah. Um, well, I think part of it too is... Um, they probably look at us and, well, if, say, there is um, that future generation looking back mm -hmm. on us now, they have they have the advantage of seeing where right. all of this leads, where the, where the current, say, like the current unemployment crisis or the, mm -hmm. the current pandemic, um, where that leads and the place in which sort of our culture and media exists as part of this sort of unbroken mm -hmm. chain of events. Um, and I mean, it's like the same as um, us looking back on the, the roaring twenties and, and thinking of just how huge a change it is just like, Oh, they weren't, they were totally unwitting of the, the stock market crash in right. 1929. They didn't know the depression was coming. And there also is a tendency towards a, a sense of judgment, I think, because we end up thinking, how short-sighted could they be to sort of have this myth of perpetual right. economic growth and whatnot? Um, I mean, I recently reread the the Great Gatsby uh, by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and just God, though, <laughs> this, <laughs> it's it's insane how just it it captures that exact yeah. moment in time through that sort of upper class and middle class meeting the edge point and all of that. It's really fascinating, but I don't know. You, you do see sort of their short sightedness and their own sort of lack. Of oh yeah. What no, I'm sure people will definitely think of some of the events that we've experienced in our teenage and younger years um, as grave mistakes or, things like or events that could have been totally avoidable um because of our own you know short-sightedness and the fallacies that comes with being human even though that that really is just what it is is our humanity that sometimes leads us astray but is also what makes us you know change and stuff yeah well i mean think to like uh 9 11 and the uh, us invading mm -hmm. Iraq and you know, that um, that was a very human moment for the yeah. for the whole country. I think, um, um, and I don't know. It's it's interesting. We we can make all of these missteps, but they can only be judged as missteps mm -hmm. uh, retroactively. I, I remember there's a. I'm going to badly paraphrase it here, but I think there's a, a quote from. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, which is basically just um, life can only be lived forward, but it can only be looked yeah. back on backward. So, yeah. Oh, that's 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 crazy. Yeah, and I think 
Yeah. So. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> that's that's our current cultural condition yeah. evaluated. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. I don't know what. I'm <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know how reliable any of our sort of estimations of where this is headed really i'm not contributing <laughs> that much to what we were saying but just generally i think it's it's interesting to note how sort of fallible our current view of a situation and our current yeah. understanding of it is well i think yeah. i've i think what i kind of take too easily to is uh i'm very much a a trusting person with like um, government officials and a lot of the news sources I read. And I think right. I need to, I think over time I will, I will need to develop a sense of what I think is right and wrong and what is, was reputable or not. But I think what I usually default to is just trusting so much, like whatever our, our, uh, our health officials say, our local health officials, um, where I can go around saying, well, we shouldn't be opening our economy up because of, you know, whatever Swedish uh, scientist that has created all these graphs to show what could happen with a second spike in cases. But um, I think as I, hopefully as I get older, I'll develop more of a sense of not necessarily practicality, but just, I don't know. Do you kind of see what I'm saying? I, I see what you mean. It's like a, a pragmatic Right, because there's got to be a balance because you can't obviously believe everything you read, but you can't also just be totally dependent on yourself because that's not right. So I think I'm just in a point um, <laughs> in of reflection where I think I, I, le I definitely lean more towards interdependence and relying on what other people say. Um as opposed to figuring things out on my own. So, yeah. Yeah. No, trust me. I get that. Um, well, what news sources do you primarily? So I get a, a, a daily morning briefing from the New York times, which is just like the very basic bare bones stuff. Um, mm. And then I have a whole list of stuff. Um, that I read, but some of it I don't necessarily read. Like I have both um, the uh, the Nation and the National Review as like news sources I'm following in my news app. Even though I, it's it's been so the AI or whatever does not apparently like those because it never gives me those stories. So, um, mm. but I I kind of occasionally I'll look to local news sources like Nine News or whatever because it seems to be pretty legit. Um, and then all of like the very like time magazine or NPR and then stuff like the Atlantic, which is, it's pretty left, but it, I try to look at it from both a, yeah. a, a consumer and a journalist uh, journalist's perspective. Um, because some, some things can be very opinionated, 
um, and uh, can have like some news sources can have great opinion pieces that I may not agree with or are very radical, but it's also really good journalism or vice versa. If it's not great journalism, but it's very reliable and very bipartisan. Um, and then I'll have like the Wall Street Journal, Washington yeah. Post, BBC News, The Economist, Los Angeles Times, Reuters, and Associated Press. Those are like the main ones, I think. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting kind, yeah. of, kind of collection. Yeah. What about you? Hmm. <laughs> well, for me, I uh, my tendency is not really to invest a huge mm-hmm. deal in the in the news. Um, mostly, I, I I get it from from my mother who uh, loves CNN and um, MSNBC. She really sort of. Mm-hmm. goes through a lot of that stuff and i sort of collect a lot yeah. of information by osmosis um, i get that from my dad too <laughs> but uh, similar stuff yeah yeah um but myself usually what i'll end up doing is um i the primary one i i end up reading if and when i do read one is um is uh, yeah. uh the wall street journal and considering i think it well at times mm-hmm. it can be right leaning and whatnot i i do generally i do generally yeah. trust the integrity of the paper um um but on top of that i still maintain a good deal of skepticism on the way they report things so i'll usually also use bbc news and um mm-hmm. and npr as sort right. of my go-tos because yeah in my mind the quality of journalism and the reputability of the newspaper which of course has had to be built upon just you know years and years of dedication to truth and accuracy and things like that um kind of trumps whatever um whatever political affiliations they carry like with the wall street journal it's just such solid information with just like hardcore factual reporting and evidence that um while it's it's still there, obviously, uh, their bit of bias. Um, that's that's what I try to keep as a top priority when I read my news, as opposed to what I agree with or is most accessible to my opinions. Yeah, uh, yeah. just objective bias, reporting something factually rather than uh, trying to skew it through the mechanisms of exactly. perspective yeah. or labeling or whatever um uh, one amusing thing i do read rather frequently um is the this sort of underground uh, oh yeah communist newspaper yeah called the workers vanguard um i remember i discovered it at tattered cover a while ago and just <laughs> was like this thing is surreal uh, <laughs> it's weird because it, it has like these um these really sort of hyperbolic headlines mm-hmm. and stories and whatnot. Um, like, uh, uh, Raul Castro promises continuation of, <laughs> of a glorious revolution, revolution, revolutionary yeah. activity in Cuba, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, but at, at the same time, I, on <laughs> one end, I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm drawn to it by the fact that I do share very 
mm. very communistic sort of sympathies in terms of my own political views. Um, but at the same time, I just think it's amusing to watch as sort of this this yeah. cult mentality develops around it. And yeah, because I mean, that thing, it holds um, like Marx and um, Engel as um, sort of um, of economic policy <laughs> it's of economic policy mm-hmm. of, of philosophy in general um it, it's it's bizarre and surreal but it's it is well because that's the only way that those society. smaller news sources kind of hold up i think because obviously they need patrons to keep them afloat whether it's through advertising or subscription or whatever but um <laughs> i was my brother and i we were, we went to, we just did like a Google search for um, a media bias chart. And then we went to the bottom of the chart, like least reputable, just like garbage journalism. And then we went to the farthest ends of the political spectrum. Um, and we found the most liberal um, uh, news source to be the Wonquette, which is like, um, I guess it's what you would call feminazi um, <laughs> journalism. Um, oh. But it's just so funny because like every headline, um, it just like it blatantly had like the F word in it for no reason whatsoever. And it was it's all these like really irrelevant stories too, like nothing about COVID uh, other than they're like advertising to pay for their uh, newspaper. Um, It's all it was just all very funny to me. And then we the other one we looked at um, was uh, which was very poor journalism and then on the other side of the political spectrum was Infowars, which is that, um, yeah, um, yeah. Um, Alex Jones. Yeah. Which I find interesting because it's also that, uh, that cult mentality of um, just fierce, fierce loyalty to, uh, to ideas and to um, that news source, uh, which I, yeah, I find very interesting and um, yeah. Well, I mean, every news source will will in mm-hmm. some way uh, appeal to its own niche. Um, that is effectively how those sorts of journalistic right. enterprises operate. Um, but at the same time, you also have, um, well, especially with with Infowars, I think you have it sort of encapsulated right. in the personality of for sure um, Alex Jones. They they yeah they put a face on these ideals, on these positions, and they make sure that sort of he as this <laughs> crazy... But slightly endearing. Lunatic. Uh, <laughs> slightly endearing in a way. Yeah, well, especially if you have that sort of... If you share those views, you'll you'll pigeonhole yourself far enough to the point at which you really do uh, treat that sort of character as something like Karl Marx or something to look up to uh, like Karl Marx well well yeah I, I think it's interesting because I'm pretty sure Marx would have well and Marx wasn't necessarily putting too. a face <laughs> to it I think the idea he spawned was much more in and of itself just such a just yeah. so impactful that they didn't really need to put a face to a name but so I guess it does differ in that way but yeah, well, I mean, on top of that, I think 
part of it is also aided by the history of this sort of uh, socialistic uh, imagery and whatnot that you see throughout older communist countries and uh, things like that, where you have, um, you literally have these gigantic sprawling murals, which show these mass, Mm -hmm. this just mass of people uh, basically throwing praise at these, these Mm -hmm. portraits of people like Marx and Lenin and, Stalin or 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 Mao and uh, Marx. It depends on the situation, but um, I think the interesting thing about Marx is he was much yeah. more of a philosopher than a politician. And there is there are many times uh, just ways in which people take full front his uh, political views and do not consider their their grounding in sort of these this. Uh, metaphysical or mm-hmm. epistemological grounding that they have. I think it's fascinating because it, it's you're able to create this either if you live in one of those communist nations and you grow up with into that sort of mentality and whatnot, um, you will end up praising his ideals without mm-hmm. really understanding their full complexity. Because that's generally what the society would like to enforce yeah. as a way of understanding it. Um, to prevent criticism, but yeah. instead to create something to idealize. Um, and at the same time, in, say, Western countries, especially the U.S., where you do have sort of... Whoa. Did you hear that? That was a was that? huge plane. Yeah. I can see it. Oh, wow. <laughs> That it's flying low. Ooh. It's got two wings near the front, or yeah, and it's very, it's very like thin and streamlined, and it's it has like a tan color, almost like a, like a like the camouflage you see in movies about the Middle East, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my gosh, it is hauling kind of stuff. But all right, it's gone now. <laughs> have you been? Have you been? Yeah. Have you been noticing a lot of that too? Because, I mean, over where I live, it's just like every day, it's just, just like, it sounds like a massive. (laughs) uh, Yeah, maybe it's because we're home more and we're just more taken to the details, but. Yeah. Or, I don't know, maybe it's some sort of. Maybe the Air Force is rallying all their their planes. There, <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Maybe it's just a, a sort of, um, yeah, way of maintaining surveillance. <laughs> it's a means of oppression. <laughs> That's my, um, yeah. Sorry, um, I totally. So it was. Yeah. What the hell were we talking? Sorry about, about that. I didn't know the plane was going to so rudely interrupt our our conversation i didn't know it was either so <laughs> nice you can be forgiven <laughs> uh, we were talking about uh marx what were we talking about christ and the complexity that it actually offers but okay. that is hard to see when you're grown uh, when you grow up with it yeah yeah okay thank you <laughs> and then in the well i was saying in the in the u.s on top of that, there is this tendency in the U.S. and other uh, Western nations, there is this strong tendency to view uh, his ideas um, 
as essentially just a straw man definition of what they mm-hmm. are, of what the Soviet Union or Mao's China represented. Um, and it sees them and it takes that as the exact expression right. of Marxist um, ideas and positions, right. which well, and that's that's from. kind of akin <laughs> to all the the increase in racism uh, with that that COVID has brought towards Asian people. I think because it's just that kind of that idea of because Marxism obviously is foreign because he was like a he was German um, and it other than like the 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 red scare kinda it's never really pervaded our domestic walls um it's it's that just that idea of foreignness like representation um skewing it by grouping things together when there's really a lot more disparity um than we think yeah I think it's interesting because there is this idea that in sort of philosophy that there is a recognition, sort of the way a person constructs themselves is through right, a recognition that distinction. of self and other. Yeah. And then a, a recognition of sort of either validation mm-hmm. from the other or a condemnation of the other. Um, and then using that to sort of provide a frame of reference for what is a person's self and their own uh the own their own individual way in which just their character grows Uh, and both are deeply deeply important but i think with many um well like say i i talked to to my my grandmother Mm -hmm. who grew up republican who grew who grew up in um a little oh. coal town in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. Uh, <laughs> so you can you can guess the the degree of, of toleration right. she has for, like, say, minorities and whatnot. Um, um, and not to judge her or anything, but I, I don't mean to do that. I think it's an interesting look into how mm-hmm. circumstance influences a person's view of a situation. Um, and I think it's interesting because... I've, I've say, read um, the Communist Manifesto. I've read Das mm-hmm. Kapital because I think it's fascinating. Um, and I've looked into all of these different sort of schools of communist thought because I like to explore that sort of ideological foundations. And she and I, I talk to her about it, and we end up sort of conveying our ideas in different sort of dimensions to the same reality we look at she looks at it in a way that's been influenced by her situation i've been i look at it in a way that's been influenced by my situation and say i'll i'll introduce all of these different terms i'll talk about i'll talk about uh marxism i'll talk about um democratic socialism all of these different ideas and she, of course, has the frame of sort mm-hmm. of a McCarthyist view of the situation. And a, a look into all of this as a collective sort of other, a sense of something intruding on an American way of life and all of that. And I think it's interesting because in that you see yeah. the unreliability of both positions, both mine, um, because mine 
initially anyway, and likely still today, is very much so influenced by this idea of um, our modern times and the modern way of Mm -hmm. making that sort of intellectual challenge and debate. But it doesn't consider the cultural history behind that um, unless it's asked to. Um, And I think at the same time with her, she has that mindset that's been set Mm -hmm. honestly at a very impressionable kind of time in her life and slowly developed into this whole system of beliefs surrounding the ills of this idea and rationalizing uh, why it doesn't work or refusing to acknowledge the the nuances of it and instead creating Mm -hmm. resorting to a straw man sort of representation and I think very much so that that is sort of an example of sort of growth within self and growth by recognition. Right. And that's the, that's the great thing with Taoism is because it's kind of an island in the sea of differentiating, differentiating yourself between the other because it's so, um, it's so delving deep into your own psyche and figuring out what you mean but just using concepts that are also, but using concepts that aren't like derogatory towards other people, just kind of yeah. Well, it's mm-hmm. about this philosophy of flow and observation, sort of taking these basic principles and these basic examinations of life and using sort of a natural progression of things as a way to build a philosophy off of that. Um, And I think that you can, well, I I remember there's something. So in Zen Buddhism, they have these idea of the, this idea of the koans um, where they are literally riddles that are either impossible or that share a, um, a view or a moral through um, mm-hmm. just uh, uh, metaphor or failing it behind concepts that can be really understood by humans while as a whole the larger recognition of the mm-hmm. situation is sort of beyond human reckoning um, and Zen monks will usually meditate over these koans and I remember there's a there's a koan that is also a story about the Zen master uh, Joshu, where um, the idea is this monk comes to visit uh, the uh, Zen master Joshu in search of enlightenment. So they come out into this little garden, um, and Joshu is sitting there meditating, and the the monk walks up to him. Um, and asks him, how have you found meditation? And um, Joshu replies, um, have you eaten your meal? And the monk replies, yes, I have. So Zoshu ends oh. by saying, then clean out your bowl. Which, and as such, the Zen ma- the uh, monk is then awakened to the reality of enlightenment. That's the idea. Uh, so by metaphor, you have this idea of sort of one's own experiences being a meal. As in life right. is something we consume, we interpret, we see, we view. Mm-hmm. 
and we we stain the bowl of our own mind. And as Lao Tzu says in the in the Tao Te Ching, um, yeah, a bowl is most useful when it is empty. So he is saying, clear out your mind, mm-hmm. clear yourself of all of these notions, all of these experiences. And experience the world in much the way a, a child would, right. as free That's of really prejudice cool. and preconception and all of that. Um, yeah, um, there's another Cohen I really love, which is what the sound of, of one hand clapping. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, mm-hmm. they're also meant to literally be impossible riddles sometimes. Because you know, just like even if we take a very scientific view from it, we know that a hand must make some sort of sound on its own, just passing through the air. But at the same time, that's not necessarily clapping. And yet, Mm -hmm. it's the same sort of motion, and it only uses one hand. And I think it's it's fascinating because it's just sort of showing this whole to our own language our own linguistic ability to understand the world and recognize its nuance uh, the sort of limited um, viewpoint we as humans have in these situations (laughs) so anyway now that i've rattled on about that but it's good it's good rain Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, anyway, so I think very much so those sorts of things really do reveal the the, the beauty behind that whole philosophy because Zen Buddhism began as mm-hmm. Chan Buddhism, which was heavily influenced by Taoist philosophies. And Zen itself, when it sort of went across the, the sea to Japan, also adopted all these different sort of Shinto ideas of right. sort of animism sort of. in all things and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, to an mm-hmm. extent, yeah. Um, well, that's, similar that's cool. to animism. Yeah. 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 Um, Have you so, ever... Yeah. That's, I'm not that's totally sure sense. how the, the, the institution of Taoism works um or you know zen buddhism but have you ever met anybody um that is i don't know high up in those any of those institutions so to speak uh high up no um well i think with taoism um the situation is Mm -hmm that it's a very decentralized uh, religion. Um, to call it a religion at all is honestly rather dishonest. I've heard it mm-hmm. more frequently called a, a philosophy than anything else. Um, but um, the idea behind with that, you have these groups of what are called, what are known of as mystics or sages um, who sort of practice uh, uh, Taoism in a very exact way. They they intentionally follow a certain course. They um, they want to live this life of flow mm-hmm. aside from others. They want to discover their true self. They meditate over uh, 
related things. Um, with Buddhism, um, I have not met anybody necessarily high up. Um, there is the Buddhist center mm-hmm. down in Denver, uh, which I've gone to a few times. Mm-hmm. And they technically do have a grand master there. Uh, but I, I've, I've met him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's far from anything authoritative or whatnot. Um, he, he just ascend. he's, mm-hmm. it operates in a very sort, almost like a commune in a way. Um, uh, same with a Buddhist Sangra here up in yeah. um, Arvada that I usually pay more attention to. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting because they, they all, many people in the West, especially with Buddhism's sort of popularization mm-hmm. throughout uh, sort of spheres here, they did not, they basically neglect the first sixth of the um, portions oh, to the, to what is known by Buddhists as the, is it, is it sort of like the old, like an old Testament situation, yeah. which it's, it's close to it in a way um, because it, it's got all of these different sort of dictations for how a person Whoa. should act when they encounter enlightenment according to the ideas of the buddha yeah it's like all of these things right speech right intention wow. right action um and whatnot and and sort of with the way that um buddhism has been interpreted in the west um by say philosophers like alan watts and baba ram das they've shifted the narrative away from those which are ethically concerned which are very direct sort of ways of saying this is what mm-hmm. the ideal person should act like according to this common sense and then tried to shift the narrative away from those towards the last two um the last two noble mm-hmm. truths not noble truths the last two parts of the eightfold path which are right concentration Whoa. that's and right very interesting to me because it seems like something like that wouldn't happen but of course yeah. Westernization seems to change things, so <laughs> yeah, it does. And well, I think on top of that, just like um, I think it's it's really fascinating to see the same thing happening with with Hinduism, where you have uh, no, what's that? Well, you know the idea of yoga. So, um, of course, in the West, we have the whole thing of right. just sort of like this movement and yoga and all of that. Um, in Hindu culture, what that means more than anything is sort of a direction okay. for one's own spiritual energy. Um, mm-hmm. And pushing that through through action and things like that. And you have these different types. You have uh, karma yoga, you have yanana yoga, bhakti yoga. Um, where <laughs> karma yoga is like fulfilling your place nice. in the past so that you may advance in terms of enlightenment. <laughs> and um, yanana yoga, where study is used as a form of religious worship. Um, and right, bhakti, bhakti yoga, movement, which, yeah. Um, you remember the term bhakti from like AP World. Yeah, the whole idea of that is direct spiritual mm-hmm. praise to idols or 
holding these household gods or things like that. Um, and I think that's, it was very much so that sort of Indian gurus ended up interpreting this idea of yoga as just a sense of flow in activity. But if we're following exactly a Hindu tradition, it's also saying this is where you should direct your energy through karma yoga as fulfilling your place in the greater scheme of things or through yanana yoga as some sort of mm. means of study or through bhakti yoga for praise and whatnot. Yeah. And it, it's, I think it's really fascinating because that sense of popularization of trying to make these ideas more approachable. Right. Do you think like with sort of the, the karma yoga, um, like, is there, there probably is, but there is, is there like a sacrilegious means of yoga or is there like incorrect ways to interpret that like movement and flow? <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. Um, yeah. Um, but by and large, there is viewed to be sort of this, um, well, specifically just um, with bhakti yoga, and um, you have sort of this idea of veneration of idols. Um, and there, there are certain sort of schools of Hinduism where the idea is you should not, under any circumstances, oh. put your worship to something vague. You shouldn't put it into this idea of one divinity or something. You should put it to Brahma. You should put it to Vishnu. You should put it to Rama or Krishna. Um, and um, that is basically saying you need these idols. What we have is our interpretation of the same sort of divinity we claim uh -oh. lies behind all religions. Ours is the true interpretation of that. Is it... Is it akin to, to like in Islam uh, where you're not really supposed to portray, you know, Allah in um, like pictures or art? Uh, no, far from it. Um, with with Krishna and and Kali and Vishnu there is a gigantic emphasis on iconography on on pictures on sort mm -hmm. of encapsulating this divine form in this picture in this idea in this thing we have in front of us um and using that as a course for okay. our own yoga or and our own direction um and it's often realized in human form exactly that way um I mean, for God's sake, you have stories of, of uh, Krishna, um, who isn't quite a god. Um, he, he's akin mm -hmm. almost to sort of a, a Jesus Christ figure in that sort of religion. But to, to weigh it with the same connotations would be uh, mm -hmm. just bizarre because he is a warrior prince. He is a... He is somebody who has this very militant sort of aim in a lot of the stories they describe in the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata. Um, 
and he okay he is very much so he's basically a demigod in a lot of senses and you have these stories of him as being very human almost like a greek god um there's there is um a bit where he literally ends up multiplying his form nice. a thousand times to have sex with a thousand different women there's a part of that in the mahabharata um and in that you see basically this idea of him as something divine something venerable but still human still um something right. subject to fallacy and subject to human desires and all of that um which is almost like the whole mm -hmm. Greek thing with uh, Aphrodite and Dionysus and whatnot, but much more just their in their actions on this world are holy and must be upheld and viewed yeah. in a certain light, and it's really fascinating. Um, but of course, you have all of these different sort of characters in in Hindu uh, tradition. You have um, you have Rama, this traveling mystic, seeking to enlighten the world. You have uh, Vishnu mm. as sort of the the balance god. <laughs> you have Brahma as the ultimate figure of order and exactitude. You have Kali mm -hmm. as the the Earth Mother and the the agent of chaos and all that. It, it's fascinating, but you do see this very human interpretation of them, um, which mm -hmm. could potentially arise from the fact that it is a very polytheistic religion um, with thousands of different gods, with so many different ways of interpreting it. It's, it's fascinating. Um, one interpretation I especially oh. like is the idea that the entire universe is just Brahma's dream. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, that's cool. That's that. It's, I like that idea. It's fascinating. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I think I remember yeah. I, I sent you those those pictures from that book, Be Here Now, uh, by Ram Das. Um, and one of those had um, this picture of uh, Kali. Um, yeah. Yeah where it was talking about her as the the divine mother and all of that as sort of this this wayward agent of mm -hmm. not necessarily chaos but agent yeah. of of spontaneity or continuously changing life um and sort of examining her yeah as, almost like she is the cycle and all of these giving birth to life um and then also the the cause of death yeah yeah there is actually exactly that part of the part of that page i think says um birthing a child mm -hmm. in one hand and lighting a fire in the other or something to that effect and i think that's that's a fascinating way of oh looking man at i'm just looking at this picture that you sent me yeah yeah i know yeah it's crazy <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool because you can find whatever crazy stuff on the internet, but to put it in print—that's ballsy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. I like this. Um, I just turned a page to page 63 of that book. And it says, the way Bhakti <laughs> works, you just love until you and the beloved yeah. become one. Um, <laughs> which is an interesting way of looking at it, yeah. Because it is spiritual veneration, yeah. but at the same time treating it with this idea of oneness, despite iconography. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, so there is an ethical dimension yeah. to these Eastern and religions. Just give it a, a, a name and a, to neglect that. You know, dimension. a punishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's very much so. Mm-hmm. We live in a very insulated kind of cultural environment to an extent because not so much that we reject other cultures or other ideals or other positions, but just because we insulate, we create this environment of intellectual insulation whereby mm-hmm. we have these, these exact set conditions for our way of thinking, the way in which it's been directed by sort of a societal condition or um, this direction when yeah. we've been told common sense flows or something like that. And sort of use that as mechanisms by which to reject other things, to reject change, to reject In concepts, sound bits of uh, religious or ethical thinking. New, yeah, new dimensions to ideals. Um, like, say, it's interesting because uh, Ram Das, who wrote that book, uh, Be Here Now, uh, he began mm-hmm. as, I think, a, a philosophy doctor um, in the West. And who, through sort of discovering these Eastern philosophical practices, through experimenting with LSD and transcendental meditation, uh, ended up becoming mm-hmm. a, a guru, um, a Bhagwan, as they call them there, um, and uh, ended up sort of migrating up into the Himalayas and, be- and turning into this hermit who synthesized all of these different ideas. Um, like you have uh, him comparing mm-hmm. Krishna to to Jesus, which again I say is unreliable to a certain extent. Um, you have uh, his idea of this this sort of universal truth governing all things, which I do see very much so uh, as a functional idea and as a a good observation, but at the same time, right. It, there is yeah. a bit of nuance to that generalization. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, continuing. <laughs> um, I have what been reading, okay, there's this book series, and it's called this... Magic by Angie Sage. Um, and it's it's literally for like 12-year-olds, but I literally can't put it down. It's the most interesting thing. It, it came... It's another early 2000s um, wizard series like Harry Potter. um, And it very much contains the same sense of sort of uncertain whimsy, but also serious complexity and stuff like that. So I've been I've been looking into that. um, And then I've just kind of been binging on movies. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. What about you? You got your uh, yeah, got, got your Murakami. Yeah. Which you, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I well, I finished. I finished that. Um, at the moment, I'm reading this one book, um, which has both an unconventional title mm-hmm. and is and is one of the weirdest books I've read in a while. Uh, if on a winter's nice. night, a traveler by um, Italo Calvino. Oh, um, oh wow. <laughs> It is a book about reading books. Huh. A novel. Yeah, I could imagine. It's unimaginably meta. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, it's incredible because um, it shares this overall sort of narrative that links together all of these different other stories. And together it creates this full just sense of of continuation of the same yeah, themes of that the sounds same cool. environments, whatnot. It's really a beautiful <laughs> as hell book. But it is it is incredibly weird too. And I like it. Um on top of that I've been uh I recently ended up um I binged this oh, one I show heard of that. on Netflix. No uh, called The Midnight Gospel. You haven't heard what of it? What is it? Oh my god, it is so insanely weird. Um, so it's basically this... Um, <laughs> how do I describe this thing? Um, it is basically this sort of uh, podcast melded to fit into the narrative of this insane, trippy, psychedelic cartoon. <laughs> um and it, it who um <laughs> uh it, it's in our there it's so incredibly weird mm-hmm. and just insane you have on one end these this podcast and these interviews going on um and then on the other you have this this insane sort of psychedelic imagery like there's there's literally a a bit where um it follows this central narrative of this character mm-hmm. named Clancy, who basically uh, has this simulator, this this uh, computer, nice that contains all of these different smaller universes inside of it. Oh, and each is enduring its own sort of apocalypse. And what he does what? is he enters into this machine, and he ends up interviewing oh somebody gosh. in this sort of world yeah (laughs) and those interviews are actually with real people between the guy who voices uh clancy uh duncan trussell and all these different people like he he literally had one of the disciples of ram das on the show oh my gosh and he had a practicing ceremonial (laughs) magician on there um it is so unimaginably weird but it is so incredibly beautiful at the same time <laughs> yeah so i binged that um i adored it just mm. amazingly like well it's interesting because uh like the ceremonial magician uh this is a guy who Whoa. apparently had ended up being falsely convicted of murder um and was sitting on death row for years um 
and ended up falling into the these mm-hmm. ideas of um of zen buddhism and ceremonial magic as things underlying no that. way and he eventually ended up being um exonerated by dna evidence um Got, I would yeah, too. Got out of prison in prison and then started practicing that ceremonial magic professionally. Yeah. And it's it's amazing oh because gosh. you have that as the the real world dimension to that story. And in the course of the animation, they literally have him as this um this little tiny uh how do I describe the character? Um they make his character this mm-hmm this humanoid uh this robotic humanoid form with a fish and a bowl as its head and he is guiding our main character through an alternative dimension to find ice cream (laughs) and meanwhile they're talking about wow that sounds crowley and wow it is so insane but i loved it (laughs) right yeah the show is like doing oh acid gosh. without doing acid. That's the short description of it. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds cool, but yeah, I don't know. I want to keep my it's sanity really too. Impressive. I really recommend. Yeah, it's it's a mind bender. It's a mind bender. <laughs> yeah, it's like Twin Peaks, but somehow weirder. Um, yeah. I don't know. I like to throw my mind under buses occasionally, I guess. Uh, What's it, it called really again? What's the show, show called again? It has a very... It, the last the Midnight Gospel. It's just amazing. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, the Midnight Gospel. Mm-hmm. It, it very briefly saw a, a bit of a boom on Netflix, presumably... Presumably caused by people uh, <laughs> and, uh, during sort of uh, probably for the same exactly reason yeah popular. that makes sense. It, it's quarantine and we don't know what else to do. <laughs> yeah, Nicholas Cage yeah. is playing Tiger, the, the main guy. Did you hear they're making a movie adaptation yeah. of that? I don't know. That seems like such a a, a latter day yeah. Nicholas Cage thing to do, though. Why the hell? Like. It's either make another National Treasure movie or play Joe Exotic. So it does, yeah. Well, did you? Yeah. Well, did you see him uh, uh, recently? Uh, he did this. He did an, a movie based off of an H.P. Lovecraft story. Um, oh, it's so good! Uh, it's the Color Out of Space, um, <laughs> and just. <laughs> His character is just perfectly insane uh, and perfectly fits the whole situation. It's like this. this, <laughs> this kind of, well, okay. Uh, everything I talk about needs context, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I live in my own weird world. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, so the color out of space is basically about this, the original story by Lovecraft. It's about this meteor that crashes to Earth, um, and it has this bizarre sort of mm-hmm. uh, unknowable or insane color never before seen by human eyes um, that sort of radiates off of it. Mm-hmm. And eventually the asteroid sort of decays away and just withers out into nothingness on this farm. Um, 
and then just later on oh. all of the the trees literally start to animate with their own energy um they start to express this color the creatures on the farm begin to mutate um and that extends to the the family there that the sounds artists. really cool um and it's a really incredibly freaky story um very well done i loved it um especially <laughs> by its its ending and the i i wouldn't spoil it in case you ever do read it <laughs> but um on top of that um just oh it, it modernizes that story because lovecraft had it in a 30s setting all of that kind of stuff um and it modernizes it and portrays mm -hmm. um nicholas cage as the gardner family uh father um and he mm -hmm. basically just is this 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 dopey sort of sort of suburban dad um who doesn't know yeah. how the hell to cope with the crazy surreal lunacy going on around him yeah. <laughs> well dang um, and he eventually does go completely loopy <laughs> yeah um well it's also <laughs> Um, what was I going to say? I, I hate these moments. <laughs> um, but, oh, um, it's really fascinating because in sort of the, the, the newer, uh, modernization of the story, you see, uh, some of the oh, vaguely themes that Lovecraft tries to inject into the story made much more evident, um, and hyperbolized, not necessarily okay. hyperbolized, but more made to suit a modern environment and show us what Lovecraft was really talking about. Um, and I think nice. it, there is actually a, a cameo by Tommy Chong. I do not. Um, in the movie. Do you know who Tommy Chong is? Oh, yes, oh, of course. Oh, um, oh okay, yeah. Okay, so I know who Tommy Chong is, sorry. <laughs> I just had a, a brain yeah. lapse or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, Tommy Chong is in the movie uh, for a brief bit, and he's a wonderful character there. Uh, it, it's a great flick. It's also really nice. incredibly fun because it takes after these sort of yeah. uh, B-movie horror conventions. It's... It's wonderful. Right. I really love it. Well, Nick, I really hate to do yeah. this to you, but I have a I have a three yeah. thirty so math study session to attend. Mm -hmm. Yes, but I would really like to do this again sometime. No, that this was really enjoyable. No, that's fine. Um, yeah. Do you still have yeah. the first episode we did? This was this was incredibly yes. enjoyable. Oh yeah, I still have it. Um, mm, it's still nice. on things like uh, <laughs> I think we ended up on Spotify right. just because Anchor threw it everywhere. Um, yeah, so sounds good. So I'm going. Thanks for having me on, man. Just go ahead and add a few things to this. Yeah, put that I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll hear you later. Then it's cool to see you. Yeah. <laughs> hear you. Whatever the hell this is. All right. See ya. I'll hear you later. You too. Um, uh